Hey, Church of the Valley family. It's so good to be with you, even though I'm not with you, and I miss you. I'd like to be able to give you a hug or a high five or a fist bump or something, but we're sheltering in place, and so here we are with our third edition of Leading While Stuck in the Home, and this week's episode is called Silence Leading to Goodness. It's our study in the book of Titus, and I don't know what your week was like. Uh, mine's not been bad, but I've had kind of a lot to do. I've been scattered in a lot of ways, and that's what my whole family is like. My wife isn't quite in a rhythm with how school is going. She's a teacher. My kids are definitely not in a rhythm of what, what life is like right now. And so we're all figuring out our own stuff and figuring out what it's like to be together. And I hope whatever it's like for you, whether it's chaos or whether you are happily hunkered down with a can of Fritos and, uh, do Fritos come in a can? With a can of Pringles and a video game you are enjoying, or somewhere in between, that you're going to be able to, to sit with us and enjoy this playlist. Probably like me, you've forgotten a little bit of what's been going on in this series. But I'm here to help you. Two weeks ago, we started the series with Pastor Tim preaching about the very beginning of the book of Titus. And he talked about God's plan for people to know God, to know Christ, and how those who know Christ grow to look more like Christ. Okay, that was two weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Tim preached about appointing elders who are pursuing godliness, not people who have attained perfection, but who are pursuing it and who people can see are showing fruit of their walk with Christ. But also that elders should be doers of the word, able to equip others to do the same. And today we're going to look at something a little bit different about false teachers influencing the flock and doing so where they are most susceptible. So, Let's just take a moment, and I'm going to leave my eyes open. Don't be freaked out. It's okay for you to close your eyes and just concentrate on what God wants for you this morning. You can bow your heads. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for empowering Paul to have a relationship with Titus, to minister with Titus, and to be able to send a letter to instruct Titus, and thereby to instruct us. Thank you for Titus's church of imperfect people. Even as we can't gather, we church of imperfect people. Would you use your word today to grow us more into the likeness of Christ and make us receptive to what you're saying to each one of us today? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our passage today starts with Titus chapter 1, verse 10. And we're going to go through verse 16, but verse 10 starts with a, a, a word that makes us have to look backwards. For, it says, for there are many rebellious people. And all of a sudden, you have to remember what it was that Paul was talking about. Okay, what does the for refer to? Well, if we go back in Titus to verses 7 through 9 in chapter 1, we see what Paul has been talking about. Since an overseer manages God's household... He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Remember that, because that's going to be different from the next people. 
Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Titus's new elders are going to have to rely on how much they really know the truth that has been taught by Paul and the other apostles, those who were personally instructed by Jesus to spread the gospel and teach. They'll be expected to encourage the church with the truth and to refute opposition to the truth. And it's an interesting mix, isn't it? Because we're combining these two things. On the one hand, not overbearing or violent or quick-tempered, but at the same time, able to sternly oppose false doctrine. And so there's a softness and the stiffness in the role of an elder. And that's why a mix of gentleness and strength in defense of the truth is important. Paul's going to explain this because there's already a big problem for the church at Crete that these new elders are going to have to face. So let's read the rest of Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Be able to refute those who oppose sound doctrine, Paul says, because there are wolves already among the sheep. So Titus's uh, call is to appoint elders who are pursuing Christ-likeness and blamelessness to lead a church that's confronted by rebellious talkers who are apparently peddling circumcision as a way to get personal gain, claiming that it's necessary for salvation. Now, in today's sermon, I've asked other members of my household to take part to help me talk about some of the topics. And so my son Calvin is going to talk a little bit about what the circumcision group was. So, Calvin, we don't as far as I know, have a big circumcision group running around Santa Clara to all the churches. So what would that group have been? What, what would they have been interested in? Yeah, so the circumcision group uh, refers to a group called the Judaizers who were present in Crete um, around the time that Paul was sending this letter to Titus. And basically what they believed is that Christians must also follow the, the Jewish traditions, uh, especially circumcision. Um, and they believe that, that that was necessary uh, in order to be a Christian. Um, and like you said, we don't have a, a whole lot of people running around the churches uh, preaching that, but like there, there are still definitely legalists um, who, if you don't know, are people who, who add laws or, or religion um, that they think uh, is necessary to be saved. And I think that's kind of in the same spirit as the Judaizers. So the Judaizers had their specific Jesus plus something that they wanted to teach, and we might get a different flavor of that today. Exactly. Thanks. One of the things that we know about the conflict with the circumcision group is that Paul and the leaders of the Jerusalem church intentionally didn't ask Titus, who's the pastor he's writing to on the island of Crete, to be circumcised. So on purpose, they didn't ask Titus to be circumcised. 
Here's the story from Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The practice of the church all along was not to require of Gentiles observance of Jewish law. The apostles leading the overall Church of Jesus Christ in its early uh, years didn't see fit to force non-Jews to be circumcised, which was the sign of belonging to Israel, of identification with Abraham, with identification with Moses, with the prophets. There were good things there, but they didn't say Gentiles have to become Jewish in behavior. So, the Judaizers were teaching differently, and Paul is very concerned. Verse 11, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Okay, so there are three things here. There's a call to action. Silence these false teachers. There's a reason for it. These false teachers are disrupting households by their, you get it, false teaching. And third is their motive. It's dishonest gain. They aren't trying to set people straight out of the goodness of their heart. They've got special knowledge and the, the Christians on Crete maybe don't know better than to pony up for the information. And there's pretty stern stuff in here. He doesn't say, hey, ask them if maybe they can dial back the dialogue a little bit. Hey, maybe they could not talk to our church members. No, he says, silence them. Okay, so the elders that Titus appoints from every town on Crete already have this big task in front of them, confront these false teachers and silence them so that they don't harm the sheep any further. Paul goes on to explain, though, that there's a problem with accomplishing this task. It sounds like an adventure game. Uh, in verse 12, he quotes uh, a, prof, a poet. He says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Okay, Paul. Uh, gosh. So this, this line is attributed to a guy named Epimenides. It's not entirely certain that this person existed, even, because he's from the 6th century BC, and as I like to say, records from that era are sketchy at best, and really the only affirmation that we have of that is post-early church. And this is 2,500 years ago that he wrote that. What are we to make of this? As Paul points out, it's a poet from Crete, smack-talking people from Crete. And he's calling them liars, he's calling them wicked animals, and lazy gluttons. So if he's calling himself a liar, can we trust him? I don't know. But here's what Paul says in the next verse, verse 13a. 
This saying is true, Paul says. Okay, apparently Paul finds that that sums up all the people on Crete. All right, Paul's making uh, a dramatic overgeneralization. But what he is saying, and it's important, is that there is a, a nature to society and people on Crete, and it's going to tend in this direction. And my goodness, it's not the best thing for a new set of elders to get to shepherd. If that's the character of the people that they're shepherding, that's tough. But if that's the character that they themselves are coming out of, that's also tough. Lest we think that this is only a problem for people from the island of Crete. No, no, no. I asked my daughter Naomi to just briefly take a look at how we might see a similar thing where somebody who's got maybe a poet's skills in our culture might call it out, whether or not they might be said to have the same problem that they call out. So Naomi, a poet from Crete 2,500 years ago, maybe not the most relatable thing. Do you come up with anybody more contemporary who might be a critic who falls into their own criticism? Um, yeah, I think that a good example of somebody like this is actually Kanye West. Um, he wrote songs such as All Falls Down and No More Parties in L.A. And this is where he mocks younger people for abandoning their normal and seemingly average lives and chasing the fantasy of the Hollywood lifestyle um, that they constantly see being portrayed by people such as himself. They see him buying an island for his two-year-old and showing off his gigantic mansion with many expensive cars, but then he constantly bashes people for chasing the lifestyle that he consistently promotes. Ouch. Uh, and then you were telling me that there was some controversy about his net worth? Yeah, Forbes magazine wrote that his net worth was a quarter of a billion dollars, but he made sure that everyone knew that he definitely was, his net worth was definitely more than a billion dollars. Okay. <laughs> well, ouch is all I can say to that, I yeah. think. All right. All right. So look, I'm not buying my daughter an island. Even if I could, I wouldn't. But I'm still tempted in other ways because I see it. I like it. I want it. And whether I get it or not, I keep thinking about the stuff that entices me. And that's something that you and your elders need to know about our corner of the world is that it indulges in its prosperity. It indulges it in, in a sense of acquisition that really has us believe that the next thing we acquire is really gonna make big differences in our lives. And maybe your experience has been different than mine, but mine is that, yeah, it's cool, but it doesn't fundamentally change anything. And so uh, this idea that we have somehow gathered that the things that we acquire are gonna bring happiness to us, and yet it eludes us. So the problem wasn't that phone or that device or that service, it was that it wasn't good enough and the next one will be the answer. Yeah, okay. Back to Titus whose people are more inclined to be apparently liars, wicked animals, and lazy gluttons. Yay! Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We started off and we said, okay, Paul said, this saying is true. Where does he go from there? Therefore, rebuke them sharply, 
so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Wow, one of the things I love about this passage is that Paul is telling Titus that his people are going to need sharp rebuke so that they don't fall into this greedy trap that these false teachers in Crete are setting for them. But Paul's instructions are specifically tailored to the needs of the churches in Crete. Now, how do I know that? Well, he just talked about what the Cretans are like and therefore rebuke them sharply. These things are connected. But I know this in other ways as well. Look at Paul's advice to another pastor in another place, in 2 Timothy. So Paul writes another letter to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. And in chapter 2, verses 23 through 26, he says this, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. And already I go, oh no, uh, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Okay, that's an interesting situation because it sounds like Paul is talking about a much gentler response even to opponents to Timothy in Ephesus, whereas to Titus in Crete, he's saying, shut them down, silence them, address this immediately. Why the difference? Because Ephesus was a different place. Timothy was a different guy. Whatever, what other differences might there be? Well, here's, here's another one from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16 at the beginning, it says, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So we already saw that Titus didn't uh, get circumcised at Paul's intentional determination along with all the church leaders. So what's the difference with Timothy? And that's the interesting thing about this whole situation is where Titus is going to minister, it's important for Titus to experience the freedom in Christ of not having to become Jewish. But where Timothy is going to minister, especially given that his mother and his grandmother were both Jewish, between that and where he's going to minister, the influence of Jewish Christians and outside Jewish uh, population is going to be that in order to do ministry properly, Timothy needs to be one of them. And so there's this distinctive between these two men in their two situations, not only in it went, what it meant for what they were doing, but also what it meant for how they were going to address the people in their churches. Timothy gave up some of his freedom in Christ to minister to his people. Titus got to experience more of that freedom in Christ, and it helped him better minister to his people. 
And one of the reasons that I want to highlight this is that you and I for sure are going to have to give up something to minister to people. You go, well, yeah, Mike, you're a minister. Of course you have to give up something. Uh, yes. And even if you're not a minister, you are probably going to have to give up something to minister to people because that's what ministry is about. It's following our Savior in sacrificial service. It's not all silencing the people that you want to silence. Sometimes it's comforting the people that you want to silence. Okay. I think that's part of what Paul is saying in the next verse, Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Now, Paul isn't saying that if I consider myself pure, then I can do whatever I want. That's not at all the meaning of what he's saying. He's saying that if I am pure, I'm going to approach every situation with a purity that's given by God appropriate to that situation. Now, as Paul says elsewhere, my flesh is going to try to take me out of that operating system uh, back into the one that it used to know. But Christ has given an upgrade to the new creation that wants to do what it's supposed to do. And if I'm pure, I'm going to be able to find purity, whether it's in circumcision or uncircumcision, whether it's in eating foods that other people around don't eat or not eating foods that other people around don't eat, or whatever the application might be today. Now, Paul has critiqued these teachers' motives, the effects of their teaching. He's critiqued their minds, their consciences, but he's also saying that they are known by their actions, or at least they can be known by their actions. In verse 16, he says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Wow. So A, that's harsh, and B, why is he going into that? Okay, A, that's harsh because these are the wolves among the sheep. And he's saying to Titus, Titus, you and your elders are going to have to take this deadly seriously or there's going to be slaughter. The second reason that he's putting it in these terms of unfit for doing anything good is that the whole rest of the book is going to be about how Titus can motivate his people into doing good for the sake of the gospel. That's really the focus of the two-thirds of the book of Titus that's left. And so what, what Paul is doing is setting this up and saying, look, you've got to nip this thing in the bud so that your people will grow. Now, as I've been saying, I asked my family to contribute uh, to this sermon this week, and I don't want to close out without us thinking about the consequences of allowing this kind of teaching to go on. So I asked my wife, Karen, to speak a bit more about this verse. All right, so when you get to verse 16, you realize what a terrible influence these Judaizers were. They were described as rebellious, deceitful, corrupted, and they were causing whole families to go astray. And I think about these young Cretans. They were most likely young believers. And as I was thinking about that, I was reflecting back to my own time when I was pretty new in my faith and just developing my opinions about God and about Christianity. I did grow up going to church, 
Um, and there were some lovely people there, but I also learned some messages that really hindered my faith. Uh, a couple examples. Uh, probably by the time of my late teens, I really thought Christianity was about a moral code. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't watch R-rated movies, and then you're all good. That's all you had to do. Um, but no one really ever told me about a relationship with Christ and how that could change my life. I was also told at one point I went on a retreat and I was told that I had to speak in tongues and that would be evidence of my salvation. And so I tried to speak in tongues and I couldn't. And I cried for about three hours. I was so upset. And then lastly, um, I went to church camps every summer. And every summer I heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that I was forgiven and all I had to do was say a prayer. And every year I said the prayer and I thought, oh, that's my ticket to heaven. But no one ever really talked to me about lordship, that I really needed to follow Jesus and submit my life to him and knowing that his ways really were much better than mine. And so um, much to my detriment, but honestly, I'm gonna be honest here. If someone had told me that or I had heard it, I probably would have discarded it because at that time I really wanted to do what I wanted to do and I didn't want Jesus um, telling me what to do. So um, I think about those wrong messages that the early Cretans heard and how disruptive that would have been. But I also in this verse, it talks about their actions and how their actions denied God. They were deplorable, disobedient, unfit for any good things. And so as I go back to my teen years again, I think it were the actions that were the most hurtful. I went to a youth group um, that was very clicky. A lot of the uh, kids went to a different high school than I did and I felt very unwelcomed, unaccepted. Uh, unloved and really on the outside and because of that I really stopped going to youth group and then eventually to church because these were people who claimed to know God and yet their actions did not reflect the love of Christ so I know I'm sounding a little bit like a victim here and I think that was Paul's point Paul's point was that the Cretans they were vulnerable, they were easy prey because they were kind of lazy. And I was lazy as a teen. I didn't really search for God myself. I didn't ask questions. I didn't find a different youth group like my sister did. And so I was very vulnerable. And then later when I got to college, this just breaks my heart thinking about it, but I claimed to be a Christian. I claimed to know God. And yet my actions were just terrible. I was super self-absorbed and unloving and prideful and I hurt a lot of people and I had a good cry over that this week uh, that was really sad to me and so as we spend uh, some time in shelter in place and we're sort of uh, get to be in our homes I'll put it that way there are so many influences that we can still uh, have right we have social media we have netflix and youtube and what are those messages that we're taking in and what actions are we watching that we're we're hoping we get to imitate what are we jealous of and uh are we focused on the things the world wants or are we focused on the things god wants and then my last question is how do we love our people in our homes well so they experience the love of christ during this season that's so hard 
So those are just a few things I would challenge you to think about um, going forward. All right, so as Karen asked, how do we get our minds off the messages that we're hearing from the world and focus instead on God and what he intends, loving the people in our homes so well that we reflect the love of Christ? Pastor Tim and I have been texting a little bit about how people feel differently about the state of the world based on what kind of information we're taking in right now. So you might feel afraid because you're watching the virus statistics and charts, or because you're looking at the stock market charts or the unemployment charts. There are a lot of things that could make you at least nervous and maybe fearful. You might feel fine simply because you lack information. Ignorance is bliss, they say. But what Paul is talking about is a feeling about the state of things that doesn't rely on being ignorant in order to be okay. It's not dependent on fast talkers telling us that, oh, it's gonna be okay, you don't have to worry about it. It's dependent instead on taking the very word of God, the God who redeemed you, and putting it into practice. And that's what those who are in Christ do. That's what those who Christ makes pure do. And it gives them a tremendous freedom. Now, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to talk about how to give an offering. But for right now, take a moment, just a moment, whether you're alone or in a group, and close your eyes. Silently ask God to show you today who you are listening to that isn't good for you. And God, I thank you for having a plan that doesn't require me to be perfect, but instead to desire Jesus's perfection, to be run by his perfection and to seek it. Where we've been deceived by false teaching, by a lie, whatever its source, would you bring your truth to light? Where we are exposing ourselves to people with false teachings and wrong motives, would you not just socially distance us? Would you rescue us? Where we value peace over what's true, would you strengthen our resolve to live as you call us to live? As we as a gathering are currently separated, would you unite us in Christ to serve one another in the neighborhoods in which we're sheltering? Would you do that for your glory? Amen. Now, before we move into another worship song and then communion, I wanna thank you for engaging with each other. I've been hearing great reports about people in community groups, people just on the side, texting each other, Zooming each other, WebExing each other, FaceTiming each other, calling each other on the telephone. And I hope you'll join us at 11.30 today, Palm Sunday, for a Zoom call together because it was beautiful to see you last week. And I wanted to tell you that it's still possible, even though we lack any way to use these things, it's really not a problem because you can go to the website at covalley.com, click on the give link, credit cards, debit cards, PayPal are all accepted there. You can mail a check to 400 North Winchester Boulevard, Santa Clara, California, 95050. The snail mail is still functioning for now.
but you could also do what I've done, which is to set up your bank's bill pay functionality to send offerings when it's convenient. And I say that because people are still asking. And so I want to tell you, if you need something different than what we've been offering so far, would you contact Robin? Maybe more importantly and more broadly, if you need prayer or help, please let your community group leader know. If you don't have a community group, please email Robin Tillman with your prayer request. We've got her email address on the screen. I miss you, Church of the Valley. I'm looking forward to our Zoom call and I'm looking for forward next week to getting verklempt again uh, when we celebrate Easter together. God bless you.